0: Welcome to the Tej Talks Podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tej Talks Podcast. Uh, Just a reminder, if you haven't left a review, please do. If you're driving, please don't. Please wait till you get home or to your destination and uh, leave a review for TED Talks on the Facebook page or on iTunes or Apple. They're the only places you can leave them, so find them out. This episode is really interesting. We cover quite a few different topics, different strategies and approaches, um, but I think there's value in every sort of mini-conversation that we have within this podcast so Aisha invests in London and in Birmingham so I think the London part is going to be particularly interesting to people who are considering it or maybe have invested in London before and are maybe looking to to go further out and her strategies from bite alerts HMOs student HMOs to commercial conversions and why she really didn't like commercial conversions are very interesting so I know that you will take a lot of value for this if you enjoy this podcast please take a screenshot post on Facebook Post on your Instagram. There's no adverts. It's totally free. There's no upsell. Um, So I appreciate and love your support. Aisha, welcome to the TED Talks podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm I'm really looking forward to this one actually because not a lot of the people I get on kind of straddle or understand the corporate side of property investment and are also part of and understand and work in the non-corporate side. And I guess we'll kind of define both of those later, but I think there's going to be some interesting discussion about the differences and similarities and maybe maybe even lessons that we can learn from one side and, and, and apply to the other. But of course, you know, you do property as well yourself. So yeah. before we get into all of that and, and the networks that you've set up um, and, and of course all the, the tips and advice you have for people – what were you doing before you you know started investing in property yourself?
1: yeah, so my my background is I guess very um sort of untraditional for people who tend to be in the property uh world, whether it's you know the corporate world or sort of personal investing. So I actually started out um in investment banking it seems like many eons ago now um, but I started out in investment banking sort of pre two thousand and eight. Um, in in M and A and life back then was absolutely fantastic, despite the fact that we worked pretty much round the clock. Um, I, I actually really enjoyed it. 2008 happened um, and life literally changed from one day to the next. I remember just sort of thinking, what the hell is going on? Um, but long story short, you know, stuck it out for for a little bit, but then just realised that it, you know, banking at that time just wasn't the place to be. Um, so I went to study I went to London Business School to do an MBA because for me I, I love to study I've always been a, a bit of a geek to be honest Um, and it just felt like the right time and then my plan was to sort of take those two years at, during business school to sort of find myself and really find what I wanted to do with my life that didn't really happen because pretty much the second you get there they're kind of Making you think about your exit and what you're going to do when you leave. So I ended up going back into finance because I just felt I didn't really have the time to to really think about what I was passionate about. Um, so I went back into finance, but doing a, a different role. So I did change in the sense that I knew the certain things that I liked to do and that I wanted to do. I, you know, despite being a geek, I very I am a people person. So I wanted to have more direct contact to people. Um. I love to work with numbers excel spreadsheets make me happy <laughs> um and so I knew I wanted sort of that as well and I ended up looking at um wealth management at Goldman Sachs uh long story short I like them they like me um I joined full time after my MBA and I was working at Goldman um for 6 years I was promoted to executive director um and essentially my role was to uh find wealthy people um you know, show them about sort of what we do at Goldman, get them to become clients on board, transfer their wealth to Goldman and then manage that money for them. And we focused on ultra high net worth individuals. And, you know, the minimum account size at GS was, um, sort of $10 million. Um, which means that, you know, if somebody's going to give you at least that much money, they typically need to have 30 to 50, because very rarely will somebody give you all of their capital so it was it was a really interesting role um meeting people that I would never have met otherwise i mean i i, I don't I mix in those circles personally um, so it it opened my eyes to just a whole different way of sort of living um and just meeting really incredible people, doing incredible things you know really interesting businesses um but a couple of things stood out for me. I realized that for a lot of particularly my clients. Whether they made their wealth through a company or, you know, another way, a lot of it always tied back to real estate, whether it would be in you know, the fact that they would have offices or whether they would own factories or plants or whatever it is. Whenever you sort of, you know, stripped everything back and looked at where their wealth was coming from, indirectly or directly, real estate always played a really, really big component. Um, so that was something that I noticed quite early on and and that was, you know, always sort of stuck in the back of my mind, but then I got to a point where my husband and I, we had some money, um, it wasn't, it wasn't a lot by, you know, you know, by other people's standards, but it was a decent amount and, you know, I sort of said to him, we, we've got to do something with it. We can't just leave it sitting in the bank, you know, the bank is the last place money should be, um, you know i know that they say oh we've you know savings account and etc but it's from my perspective a complete waste of time to put your money in the bank so we had to do something with it um i looked at various other things i built a nice you know diversified portfolio like i typically do for my clients but the difference between them and i guess sort of my situation at the time is i was and still am in what i call wealth creation mode a lot of my clients are already rich They're trying to keep their money, not necessarily make money. And they're in what I call wealth preservation mode. And depending on which you're in, what you do with the assets that you have is very, very different. So whilst a nice diversified portfolio would be great for them, it definitely wasn't what I needed at that point in my life. And I needed to sweat my money harder and make it work more. Um, And I actually came across property Um, because of somebody else that was, um, investing. I hadn't been investing for a long time and I I started having a chat with her and and various other things got me to look at property. But when I did initially, I just couldn't believe it. I was sort of like, these can't be the returns you know how I <laughs> just just how could this be you know i've worked in financial services for so long you know i knew the returns of like the goldman portfolios like the back of my hand and then when i started comparing it to property returns i was just like what on earth like how have i missed this so then i um started to talk to my husband about it Like we've got to get into property we've got to get into property and he just wasn't keen in the beginning you know as a lot of people do when they you know don't understand it um You know, you talk about, oh, you know, but interest rates and then this can happen and this can happen. But I I kept on. I kept on because. The way that I looked at it, depending on what property strategy you have, I think at the time I was just looking at vanilla by to let's, but the risk that you're taking versus the rewards that you get, for me, it was just a no brainer um so eventually i managed to persuade him to uh to to, to take me seriously it was actually an expre- excel spreadsheet um that that did the trick um you know i said i was a geek i'd actually say my husband's a bigger geek than i am <laughs> uh i only have a, a masters in in physics he's got a phd so he he's definitely geekier than i am um but no he speaks excel as well so that's what what did it and when he started to look at it as well i mean that was pretty much the green light for us we have we've never looked back um we started investing in uh, just you know buy to lets two bed two bath flats started in Woolwich. um we then we did that for several years also pretty much around sort of south london then we moved into hmos both in london and in birmingham um then started to do buy to lets in birmingham as well um then we sort of scaled up from there Started doing sort of what I call sort of smaller scale conversions. So houses to flats, things like that. Um, and then dabbled a bit in, um, commercial conversions as well. So really got quite a, a range of, of, of different, uh, property strategies. Um, but for us, it was just important to make sure that the strategy that we were doing at the right time really sort of fitted in with. Our risk tolerance and also just the time commitments that we could we could give because we were both working full time um, whilst doing all of this, uh, both working at, at investment banks. Um, I only left um, banking in in 2018 to sort of go full time in property.
0: Wow! And how long have you been in property, full time and part time in total?
1: So I say it's been about eight years.
0: Wow and you know when you you know when you when you first started out and that first deal that you did I think obviously when when people are listening and they're in that position there's so many questions they have but I think a really common one is like how did you know that your first deal was a deal (laughs) like was it was it just spreadsheet was it gut was it combination (laughs) how did you know it was going to be good
1: yeah I I I laugh because that's really funny I mean so yes there was a spreadsheet and the spreadsheet told us it made sense but because it was the very first one it definitely didn't align with how i felt i was nervous i mean i remember once we put the offer in it and got and it had been accepted i remember that night sort of saying oh my gosh we've made a mistake like we've got a we've got a call lady tomorrow um the estate agent and tell her we've changed our mind and my husband was like why and i'm like because it, it is such a it's such a lot of money. Like what if we made a mistake? What if we made a mistake? And he's like, But the Excel says it's fine. And I think for me, it was just that because it was the first time and it's something you've never done before, and you know, it is a lot of money. Um and so I was just just doubting myself. But then obviously we, we went ahead with it and once we'd, you know, completed and we owned it, I was like, actually it's fine. And then the best thing happened, like a few months later Another flat came on in the same block and it was worth even more. So then I, you know, so then that obviously meant that, you know, the values of, of our flat was increasing. And I remember going to my husband, jokingly saying, see, I told you it was a great idea. What were you worrying about?
0: <laughs> I think that's a great answer. And like, it, it, it really shows like the reality of it. Like, yeah, on your first deal, your second, you know, and maybe even ones later down the line, especially if they're bigger than your normal, you're always going to be like, Damn. I mean you might it might even be a house that's worth forty grand. It's still a lot of money for something that could absolutely, go wrong. And, absolutely,
1: absolutely. Um, and I think that the the funny thing is, in my day job at the time, I was I would have been transacting in, you know, various different investments for, you know, millions, tens of millions, literally at the click of a button sometimes. So now when I look back, it's sort of like, Well, how was I comfortable to sort of make those trades and be like you know spending millions yet for this one where I'm spending significantly less I was so worried Um, and it's not because it was you know client money versus my money I think if anything I'm I'm always more paranoid about losing client money than my own Um, I think it's just because when it's something new and you haven't done it before and you maybe don't have as much confidence I think it's normal for for you to be doubting yourself a little bit I think maybe if I wasn't I'd sort of question that
0: yeah no I think that's that's a great point and yeah it's something we have to sort of accept and deal with and you know there is an element of risk to anything and and especially in property so even even a single let vanilla you know buy to let is still going to have an element of risk so we have to just accept it and and roll with it so you know over the eight years you've been in property what do you think has been maybe the biggest change you've seen
1: oh that's an interesting one um i think it's been i mean obviously market influence uh, influences um i think you know always there's always going to be external factors that make markets go up or make markets go down but I don't know whether it's because I'm living through it, but it definitely feels to me like, you know, in the last few years, we've just been hit by a lot. And, you know, I use the words, you know, sort of black swan event. Typically, they're supposed to be those, you know, very low probability events that don't happen very often. We seem to be getting hit with quite a lot of them, um, just one after the other. So I think that's pretty unusual. Um, And then with all of the sort of. um money that's being pumped into the to the system by the governments i mean that's unprecedented as well that is going to have a massive impact on interest rates um and also on inflation um which is which itself both of those are going to have an impact on property so i think there's a lot going on in i'd say the last few years that hasn't really happened before which for me make property even more attractive um and i'd say one of because I feel that um, I feel that at some point having all this money in the system is going to have an impact. And usually what would happen or what, what one would expect is that inflation would is going to be driven up. So if that happens, you want to be holding um, assets. So things like, like property. Um, and then obviously, if interest rates continue continue to be at the floor, then it means that you can borrow cheaply and for me property only works if you use leverage so if you have cheap debt and then you have inflation so that you know real assets are going up it seems to to look like it's going to you know going to be positive um but i guess t- uh, time will tell i think what i always do is even if i have a feeling about what's going to happen you know nobody has a crystal ball you can't be certain so it's also it's always about um not putting all your eggs in one basket
0: yeah good point point. Um, and, yeah. and you know when you like first started out or even I guess maybe at any point over the last eight years have you you know gone for any type of formal education or did you learn all of it yourself and on the job
1: yeah so pretty much self-taught and sort of learning by doing I'm a big proponent of learning by doing um, I, I always have been you know even you know back at university or when i was sort of training to get into banking and they'd send you on these programs in new york where you'd learn it's one thing having a piece of paper or a book but the real experience comes when you're actually at the desk or you're actually in it and real life things are happening and you're having to adapt um so pretty much self-taught i did go on a when i decided that i wanted to get into sort of like development i did go on a like a development course i think it was a weekend by one of the bigger um training providers I won't mention which one it was um but it wasn't a waste of money but I don't think I got anything sort of tangible out of it I mean I I left after that weekend and I don't think I did anything for for a long time and then when I did do something it was with a JV partner so I mean, the way that they kind of sell these courses is, oh, you know, come on our course and then you'll be able to go off and do X, Y, Z. God knows why I thought you could go on a weekend course and then suddenly, you know, transform into a property developer. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Um, but I bought into it. Um, so I did do one of those. Um, how it, it was useful in one way, the networking. Um, some of the people that I met then, I'm still friends with now um so in that respect um it was definitely very helpful in terms of the networking and meeting people but in terms of what it was supposed to do no (laughs) I didn't didn't find it very useful
0: interesting I mean I I hear that often I think I hear people say yeah I got some golden nuggets or you know the people were great but yeah I, I, I rarely do I hear oh that was amazing the course was so good I learned everything it's always what you said is what I hear from 90% 90% of people um but i mean i know not to knock education companies as bad as some of them are um you know what you said can still be helpful you could have met someone there who gave you a million quid and that was it life-changing deal or you know you you learned one thing there that saved you a 100 grand on your next project so yeah exactly so but...
1: they i think so education is important and education absolutely does have its place um I think that, you know, with property, people have been doing it for years and years. You know, why try and recreate it if there are people who already been there, done that, have got the scars? You can learn a lot from them. So I am a big advocate of, you know, training, coaching, whatever you want to call it. But it needs to be done in the right way. And I think you've got to be realistic with people's expectations as well. Um, you know, selling people false dreams and false hopes is just wrong. You know, if somebody clearly isn't suitable for a course, then they shouldn't be going on it. And it, it should be down to the content providers to make that call.
0: Yeah, if if only they had more morals in most of these cases. So, um, you know, you mentioned over eight years, your strategy changed quite a bit. Like, mm-hmm. talk me through that evolution. What made you go from, I think you said buy to let into HMOs and then into conversions yeah. and like, what? sort of yeah, what made those changes happen and and why did they happen?
1: So I I think for me it's a it's a combination of things. Um I'm the type of person where I always push myself. I always have. Um, My friends say actually I'm I'm quite I'm very competitive. So when I started with buy to let and then I felt I kind of mastered that and we were doing it and doing it well, I was like, right, I want to sweat my money harder. There's got to be something out there where I can get a better yield or I can just, you know, do more. And then that's how we moved into HMOs. And then again, once I felt that we kind of got that, I was like, right, again, how can I sweat this? How can I, how can I get more? Um, and I kept doing that at each stage and then I got to commercial conversions. I guess the funny thing with commercial conversions is having, you know, been through a project and the first one, having been through that project, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I had actually thought at that point, this is it. I found commercial conversions. I'm absolutely going to love this. This is what I'm going to do like going forward. Um, and I guess it just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Um, I, I did enjoy it. I will still keep doing them, but not in the way that I had thought I was going to. That isn't just going to be my focus. Um, I think in, I don't know, maybe it's because I went on that bloody, i um, oh, sorry, I swore. Maybe it's because I went on that, um, that weekend course and they make it seem as if it was going to be so easy. It was hard. It was really, really, really hard and stressful. Um, lots of things went wrong that shouldn't have happened. Um, also, the fact that we were working with a JV partner, um, so that means that you're having um, you know, there are diff in fact it wasn't even one partner on that one. We had two partners, so lots of, you know, different people, different personalities, different people with different ideas, um, on top of a a build and a construction site, which, you know, challenges happen regularly there anyway. So it was just a lot going on. Um and I think in the beginning I, you know, definitely didn't appreciate that. Having been through it now, it's sort of like looking back and saying, OK, well, that was, you know, X months of my life or, or years rather. Um, and was it worth it? And yes, you do get the money out, but it's not it's not just about money. Right. It's also about time. It's also about stress and all the other things that that happened. And I think for me. Be, you know, focusing on just that is just not what I'm looking for. Um, I I left banking (laughs) like I had I thought I left I left stress behind for a reason you know obviously you're not going to completely get away from it but you know I wanted to sort of run my own business and I think one of the beauties of being an entrepreneur is you can get to pick and choose the bits that you like right so for me I thought that was going to be something that I would really love and I was only going to focus on that going forward but that's just not the way that it worked out and that's okay. Um, you know, there are other things that I focus on instead, still in property, and I absolutely love doing those. Um, I will still do some some, you know, bigger builds because um, I see the value in it as an investment, but also in terms of, you know, helping to create homes that are just so needed in this country. Um, but it's, it's just not going to be a, a massive focus for me. And it's just a personal preference. There are some people out there who are made just to do this. And they will get off on it. And that's great for them. It's just not for me.
0: Yeah. And that's a great point there, you know, that I say often, it's like, do what you want to do. You know, you're you're self-employed. You are the boss. You, you quit your job. You, you left your other business. You know, you're doing this, whatever, for yourself. So yes, you know, uh, a, a 10 unit development can make you lots of money. Yes, uh, a big flat commercial conversion can make you lots of money. But so can other stuff that you may prefer to do. You might just want to have a hundred by lets and be happy. You might want to exactly. have ten HMOs and quit. So, just because I'm doing something, just because Aisha's doing something, doesn't mean that you know, list anyone listening has to do it that way or do that exact thing. So, you know, you've obviously experienced a few different kind of strategies and done a few different deals. What was the best deal you ever did? Doesn't have to be monetary wise, but for you, what was the best deal? you ever did tell me about it and tell me the figures
1: um oh that's an interesting one um okay so i think it will have to be a property that uh, my husband and i that we bought it's a broccoli in uh south london it's a six-bed victorian um semi-detached house um so it's over sort of floors really really um really really lovely in a nice area in a conservation area um this is i'll never forget this one we bought it by phone when we were on holiday in south africa um and i remember i was driving my husband was sitting next to me in the seats on the phone with the agent negotiating and i was sort of like yelling across as i was like trying to drive the car um so th- this one was interesting because we had found a motivated seller, um, by accident. Um, it wasn't as if we were particularly, um, you know, looking for that, but we'd, we'd come across this property. Uh, I had started looking in South London, um, Southeast London because I felt that you can just get more for your money. Um, and I felt that a lot of these areas were going to be, um, gentrified them that they would start to um go up in price and this particular property was really close to the station literally three minutes away you can get into london bridge in 15 minutes so i was like this is going to be perfect for people who need to get into the city um and so we started to you know speak to the agent speak to the lady and it turned out that unfortunately for her she needed to sell i think she i think she wasn't well it was either her or her mother. One of them wasn't well, and they needed the money um, to—they needed to a downsize, um, and then they needed some of the money for treatment. But also, the house was just in 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 not not great estate, and I think they just didn't want to um, to renovate. And because it's so big, I think you know just the bills in terms of heating, etc., just wasn't making sense for them. So we bought this property over the phone when we are in South Africa. And we bought it for just over 800,000. And that in itself, I think was pretty good. Cause if I remember correctly, I think they were trying, they were trying to get significantly more and we, we really, really negotiated well and we, we got a great price. Um, and I remember at the time sort of looking at other houses on the road and some of them were, you know, at a million already. So, I felt that there was a lot of sort of value that we were getting at that point. And I guess one of the sort of things that have always stayed with me from my sort of banking days is you the best thing to do is to, although the, the, the most value that's created is a lot of it is done on the purchase. So with property, yes, you can add extensions and do all these things. And I'll come onto that later. But if you can get it at a great price on day one, that puts you in really great, in a really great place. So the plan with that property was to turn it into turn it into flats because that's where we had got to in our sort of cycle so as i said we started out with vitalettes then we did hmos and then we got to house to flat conversion so for us it's like okay well yeah let's just buy this thing and turn it into flats. um but i think because we were away and also because i think we were just a bit busy at the time we said right you know, whilst we're going we're gonna to have to put this through, through um, planning. It's in a conservation area, so it's going to take longer than it normally would have done. So while we're going through that whole thing, why don't we just do it up a little bit, get some tenants in, um, they can cover the mortgage whilst we're getting the planning permission and everything. And then when we're ready to do the build, then we'll go ahead and we'll do it. Um, and that was the plan. I think like, you know, four years later, five years later, We we still own the property um, and absolutely nothing happened with it. Now, the funny thing is, is that, you know, people will then say, well, how the hell was that a great investment? I think for us. The the price has naturally appreciated over time, despite Brexit, despite everything that's going on. And, And again, it's because we've got in at a good level. So the value has naturally been going up. But what I realize now is, and what I'm doing at the moment, is I'm actually converting it right now into um into an HMO. That wasn't my plan at the time. Um and I and when I run the numbers of this property as an HMO, it works out much better um, for us in terms of what it is that we're looking for and, and what we're looking for from our money versus putting it into flats. Um and The the thing that I love about this one is despite the fact that it's in a conservation area, we've managed to work with the council jumping through many, many hoops. But to get them to give us us permission for the six metre extension out the back, you know, we can't do anything on the side. Um, It had a loft already, but we're making some um, improvements there so we can increase the head height. Uh, It has a ridiculously big garden. So there's a lot that we can do with that as well. Um, and it's just repurposing the whole thing. So when I run the numbers on on this, um, I mean, this was pre sort of COVID, and I haven't, um, you know, run them since. But the the cost to convert this one, I got quotes in from builders. It's ranging anywhere between sort of 175,000 to sort of 210,000. So if you remember, I said. We bought it, obviously see for eight hundred. We've been letting it out. That's been paying off the mortgage and been giving us, you know, extra capital every month as well. Say, you know, build cost probably going to be looking at two hundred k or lim. Um, once we get a um, a revaluation, and that will be done on a, you know, on a commercial basis, given that it's going to be uh, going to be an HMO. I'm also going to have to apply for change of use as well. Um, We'll, we should be able to get, if not all, majority of our, our sort of capital out. Um, and the rental yield that we're going to be getting is, uh, is, is, is pretty phenomenal. Um, in that area, we can, you know, the numbers that we've been looking at, we should be able to get some of them. Um, you know, up to a thousand pounds a month. Um, so yeah, I think even though this one was, it didn't work out how we had planned it it has taken much longer but the thing that i love about it is the reason it took longer wasn't because of any sort of issues or anything like that is we just got busy but we because of how we run our business we had the flexibility to say you know what we're just going to park that one for the time being it's still going to be profitable for us but we'll come back to it later and when we have time and that's what we did Mm.
0: and you know with with that property did you buy it in terms of the deposit was it your own cash was it investors cash how did you fund that and was it quite early yeah. on or was it more recent
1: so that one was with all our own money um and that one no that one was quite a while ago so when we went into property and again this is something that we, we look back at and we laugh now and it was not the right thing to do um we used uh my husband and i we used our, our own money um and some of the properties we bought we bought them all in cash. With hindsight absolutely terrible 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 thing to do but we thought at the time that if we bought things in cash it means that we're more likely to secure the to secure the property and that to be honest that's pretty much what happened um if you go in and you're a cash buyer and you're like a real cash buyer you you get an edge over people who are going in with mortgages um but i guess the plan had always been to um To remortgage and then get the money back out at the end but some some of the decisions that we made early on when we just started weren't the smartest i remember in that block in woolwich that i was talking about um, one of the flats that we bought the vendor at the time had two that was for sale and stupidly we bought one in cash rather than buying two with mortgages. um so in hindsight when you look back it's just like what on earth are we doing that's the thing about when you're starting something new, you you learn as you go along, and for me, that's one of the I guess the the beauties of the way that we did it. We we learned by doing. So all these little things that have happened along the way or over all of the years, we've kind of stored them up, and you know we're by no means experts, but we we do have the track record, um, and we you know we have kind of lived in, and and breathed it um, ourselves what happened is and I guess this happens with a lot of people very quickly um, unless you are you know a multi multi-millionaire you're going to run out of your own money um, so when we got to a point where we had sort of invested all our own money then we started to look to work with investors um, and I think that kind of tied in quite nicely with my background because you know that's what i had done for six years at Goldman I work with investors and I invest their funds um so it was kind of a natural progression I think for us to to get to and it it wasn't something that I sort of consciously said hey you know because I did that now I should go and do this it just happened really naturally we had people approach us say oh my gosh like Aisha I've seen what you've done like I've got some money can you help me or you know do you have a project that I can invest in um and it it just it just fit fitted really nicely with my skill set um I have worked with investors for four years, have managed hundreds of millions of pounds. Um, So it was just a natural extension of what I was doing. And it is what I love. Um, And it combines both of my loves working with people, investing, but now it's in property. So a lot of what we look at now is with investor funds.
0: Okay. And I think, you know, what you said there about the cash versus mortgage and also now bridging, which can act as cash. It, it's something that like I hear so often from people who've been in the game for, for quite a while and also people even now ask me and say you know should I bridge it's expensive or should I just buy one house with all cash and I'm always like look it depends on your risk appetite but personally you know I would be buying multiple with the same cash pot and using leverage like you said very early on but you know it, it's common when starting out and there are some benefits to to buying with cash like capital raising once you've you've purchased it and stuff but yeah, you know, that one pot can buy four houses in, instead of one. So it's, uh, I think it's a discussion people have to have with themselves and analyze their uh, their risk. So you mentioned, you know, two of your deals that you've done over time have been in London. So you live in mm-hmm. London, and a lot yes. of people who live here tend to sort of gravitate to the north where you can, you know, do buy to let's, pull all your money back out, HMOs, pull all your money back out. Everything's just a bit mm-hmm. more affordable, perhaps, a bit cheaper. So you know do you primarily invest in London or is it a mix of I think you might have said Birmingham or like how do you yeah where and how do you decide how where to invest
1: <laughs> I mean it was quite easy uh London prices just got to a point where we we're struggling to find deals that we could afford where the numbers work um so we didn't have a choice if we wanted to continue investing in property you have to go where it works where you can afford um so we started looking in in birmingham and i think again this was several years ago um and i don't think i had been to birmingham before i remember the first time we went and it was to look at property uh, i had very much been a, a a london a london girl i had been to you know other places around the uk for work but but not sort of personally um so, no, I remember Birmingham was the first place we looked at purely because when we started to do online research, the numbers were what we could afford. And it wasn't very far. It wasn't very far. You know, you just hop on the train from Houston and it's an hour and 25 minutes. Um, so it, it worked for us. We started with a student HMO portfolio there because um, Birmingham has one of the highest um, student populations in the country. Um, and that worked really, really well for us. Um, obviously, given what's happened now with universities being closed, we've, we've had to pivot. Um, but, you know, pre-COVID, it was working very, very well. Um, and what we actually realized was that Birmingham seemed to be on the up. And so we thought, well, why are we only just looking at HMOs? You know, we could also do a, a buy to let strategy here. And, um, we, you know, started doing that as well. So have both a buy and an HMO portfolio um, in Birmingham. And I'd say our portfolios split 50-50 between the two, between London and between Birmingham. It wasn't a, a conscious choice. We didn't set out to do that. That's just naturally what's happened. And we are still buying. But again, we just find more opportunities at the moment outside of London that, that we can afford. But I, I have a feeling that's going to change um with with you know just the wider market environment. Um so, you know, continue to actively look. Um but for me, I'll I'll look at a deal anywhere as long as the numbers make sense. I ideally it needs to be somewhere that I can get to where I'm not going to spend the whole day traveling. Um just from a sort of time efficiency perspective. But for me it's about the the deals, the numbers, making sure they stack, making sure your plan A, your plan B, your plan C stacks. And I mean, I'm looking at something in Glasgow right now. I've never been to Glasgow. (laughs) Um, But at the moment, it's all on, you know, I'm doing sort of Google Street View and having a look around. Um, But to me, it seems like a cracking deal. So if I actually do go ahead, then I guess I'm going to be going to Glasgow. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I think that's that's kind of another good point there about a deal is a deal. And as long as you're comfortable with the location, the surroundings, the, the economy, all that kind of stuff, then... You know, if you want to, then of course you you can buy anywhere. You don't necessarily have to focus on one. I think if you are going to build an empire, maybe it is easier to focus on one area. But, you know, some deals are are just great deals and you're kind of like, well, you know, technology and travel is where it is. I I can kind of make this work. Um,
1: Absolutely. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not about to start a portfolio in Glasgow. This is a (laughs) one-off opportunity. Like this deal came up. I looked at it and i was like wow okay, i need to pay serious attention to this it, it, it's just one of those things um for me my my core sort of property portfolio needs to be a commutable distance and that's just personal choice because i like to be semi hands-on um i know people who have you know portfolios and they're you know much much further away from them they have various systems and setups in place that they can manage them it's about what finding what works for you. And that's the beauty of property. You can create it around the life that you have. You can scale up, you can scale down, you can have it close to you, you can have it further away. It's so flexible.
0: Yeah. And, you know, you know, you worked in a quite a corporate job with quite a, you know, working for a company like that, quite a corporate environment, perhaps. How difficult or easy was it to go from that to being sort of self-employed, I guess, sort of working from home, and working for yourself like how did you cope with that transition and are there any tips you can give people who are maybe about to make that jump
1: yeah it was it was difficult um I had been and I use this word quite a bit I'd been institutionalized effectively I'd worked in a corporate environment since leaving university I didn't know anything else um and I think I had romanticized a little bit what being an entrepreneur was um so when it actually happened um I remember sort of thinking, wow, like, there's no structure. There's no, you sort of put all these things in place yourself. And I guess working, when you work for a corporate, you kind of take all those things for, for granted. Um, so it was quite difficult to sort of get going in the beginning. Um, but the thing that helped me was networking. So I said, right, rather than kind of sit here on my own, I'm going to throw myself into, you know, meeting people, other people in property who are doing things, Um, and that was what really got me going, but there's a massive difference between what I call the corporate world, um, and the non-corporate world. And this applies in the property industry as well. Um, there, I, for me, there's a very just clear line and the distinct distinction. You know, I'm, there are certain things that I do with, you know, big, uh, companies in the property industry. And then obviously I've got my, property portfolio on on the other side and my property communities and it's just night and day in terms of how sort of both of those sort of microcosms operate how people within them operate um and i i just it's interesting it's very interesting to see
0: Mm. and then you know speaking of corporate i kind of said at the beginning of the podcast that you have sort of an insight or a view into the corporate world of property um, and I guess how that differs or, or similar to the non-corporate side. How did you, because mm-hmm. obviously you worked in, in finance, so how did you get involved with that aspect of property?
1: Yeah, so with the corporate side, um, it was completely chance. Um, I didn't sort of set out to do it uh, um, and I, I don't work in the corporate sense in that I work for any of these organisations. But what happened is I think one of the key sort of um, things that happened is I won an award. It was the Women of the Future Award for Real Estate Infrastructure and Construction. Um, And that was sponsored by the RICS. Um, So that gave me um, sort of access to the RICS, but um, I guess at quite a senior level. I think also a lot of other sort of corporates in the property space um, were aware of that. I won some other awards as well, and they were also more on the corporate side. So that, I guess, opened up doors for me on, on the sort of corporate side of things. And when I say open doors, it's not in a sense of that I'm, you know, I, I work for any of those organisations, but it's just about sort of having discussions with people, seeing what opportunities come up. Um, and it's more of a sort of bespoke one, you know, bespoke, you know, one project here, one project there kind of thing. Um, so there are various individuals that, you know, various different firms on the corporate side that I, you know, I'm working on different projects with. Some are business projects in a sense that, you know, it will be to, to do with actually, you know, building units somewhere. Um, but some others are what I call sort of, you know, non-work projects. Um, So to give you an example, I'm working with um, the RICS or specifically, I'm working with uh, Sean Tompkins, who's the CEO, and we are looking at how, you know, what are the sort of experiences of black professionals in the sort of build environment sector? What are their experiences? What are the challenges? And what, if anything needs to change or can be changed so that the the playing field is is more equal um it's completely a passion project for me I don't get paid um you know I'm not getting sort of any benefit out of it other than it's something that I feel strongly about I can relate to and if I can help then absolutely I you know I want to and, and that's why um it wasn't even that I really volunteered for it Sean and I were just having having a, a chat and it and it came up and then you know I started talking about my experiences in banking being a black woman and then we started to you know discuss what it could be like for people in the property and one thing led to another and and here we are working on this thing and um it's incredible
0: amazing I think like you know well, firstly congratulations on the on winning the award um And I think being able to to do something you're passionate about, especially when it comes to equality with, you know, like the pretty much biggest, most recognized sort of body in construction in arguably the non-corporate and the corporate sector. Everyone knows, you know, Ricks, who they are, what they do, things like that is pretty huge. Um, And I think for it to come from chance, uh, like that's like, it's just like, whoa, (laughs) the gods aligned everything that day to make it happen. Um, Because it's huge, right? I think the impact so, as well can be huge.
1: So what? So it's funny you you bring that up, and I know I use the word chance, and it's it's a it's a it's an interesting one. So people sometimes I've had this discussion with people before about chance or luck. I think everybody is lucky, but the difference is it's about whether you recognise when you're in those opportunities and how you, and and the steps that you take in them, because that determines what happens next. So I think for for some people. They'll be in the, those moments, and they won't necessarily realise what the opportunity is, and so it passes them by. For others, you recognise the opportunity, and you see how you can add value, and so you you go ahead. And I think that's that's what happened to me. Um, You know, I realised that there was an alignment of interest. It was something I was passionate about, something I could help. So why not?
0: Yeah. No, I agree. Fantastic. And, you know, speaking of diversity, I I used to be a recruiter. So I've kind of seen, I've never worked for a bank, but I've seen a lack of diversity in some of the corporate structures, I guess you could say that I've worked with or worked for. And then I've maybe seen more diversity in some of the kind of more startup types. Now I, in my head at least, see the non-corporate world of property, you know, what we see on Facebook, Instagram, I see that as the, the startup kind of world. And then I see, you know, all these home builders, Ricks, things like that as the kind of corporate side. And they don't they don't often kind of intermingle. I think they, they seem quite different in your opinion and your experience and what you've seen, you know, from speaking to people like Sean at Ricks. How you know, what's diversity like in the corporate and non-corporate Worlds of property.
1: Yeah, very. That's really, really interesting. Um, so, I think on the surface, I think what you said is probably true. That it would seem as though on the sort of non-corporate side of property, like you know what I call the, I, I call it the social media world of property, but I think there's a better way to describe it. Um, but you know the, the Facebook groups, etc. So I I think that they seem to be more open because you see more diverse people, but my personal experience is that a lot of things can be on the surface, but how people are actually treated and what happens behind closed doors is very, very different. Um, and I've experienced something like this myself recently. Um, I won't go into the details. Um, I don't like to (laughs) air sort of certain things in public. Uh, I'm quite a private person, but you know, I've been treated very badly um, by certain people in the industry behind closed doors. Um, publicly, it's a completely different thing. And this is on the what I call the the sort of non corporate side, whereas on the corporate side, I think it's just things are just much more transparent and it you can you can kind of see how things work. Yes, there there isn't a big representation of of. Um, Particularly ethnic di- diversity, but it's very clear for people to see. Um, so what you see and what happens tend to be quite aligned. Whereas on the other side, I think what you see and what happens in my experience, there's been a, a sort of big discrepancy. Um, I think on both sides, there's work to be done. Um, you know, as I've said on the corporate side, I think. People are aware that something needs to be done. I think the funny thing is, is that, you know, even before this whole Black Lives Matter movement or sort of, I'd say, upswell in the movement happened in the last few weeks. um, Sean and I had already been looking at this. We've been talking since last year. So it was complete coincidence with everything that's happened now that it's even sort of more topical. Uh, What I've seen on the sort of non-corporate side is just a big mess people sort of going at each other on social media you know this all lives matter versus black lives matter and i think now you're starting to to really see people's uh true colors um and it's it's quite eye-opening um in some in some ways it's it's quite sad um but but that it kind of leads back to my previous point that before you you on the surface everything seemed okay and everyone's all inclusive and everybody's tolerant but what goes on behind closed doors is 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 very very different some of that is now starting to to come to light um but yeah i think if i had to sort of you know call it i'd say for me personally i prefer the sort of corporate side because at least you kind of know where you stand um whereas the other side i just find I don't know, maybe it's just my experience, but sort of very, very cliquey, a lot of sort of backstabbing people whispering behind closed doors. And it's just not the way that I that I work. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, just my experience.
0: Interesting. I think maybe, maybe the lack of corporate structure and routine and people around you in the kind of social media property, as you said, leads to a breakdown of that maturity maybe i mean i don't know i think it's perhaps a you know when you work in a job and you dress a certain way and you're expected to be in a certain way i think it it creates a different kind of person or different kind of group psychology Um,
1: yeah and i think there's a certain level of respect whereas on the other side you know anyone can get into property anyone can set up a business anyone can really say anything um you know i've seen a lot of what I call uh, bullying um, and, and a lot of things that are just not, not pretty. Um, and it's just sort of groups of people clubbing together. Um, and because they sort of club together and they have followings behind them, they they feel that, you know, whatever they say goes, regardless of, of the facts or the truths of, of certain matters and situations. And I think fundamentally, you know, what the people need to realize is that, you know, we are all people, we all have feelings, and there are just certain behaviours that I personally think should, should not be tolerated or accepted. But on the corporate side, people don't behave like that, definitely not openly, maybe it's because, you know, you've got HR systems in place, there are procedures, there are certain ways of, of dealing with situations like that. Um Whereas, you know, it's kind of free-for-all <laughs> on, on the other side
0: yeah i think you know going back to kind of what you said earlier about like people are now revealing themselves i think like it, you know it's I, I have a little bit of gratitude that people are revealing themselves you know and that people are showing their true colors because it means okay cool you're now judged and you're judged is not something that's you know and it's, I, I think some things are i mean you can judge people by opinion but you can also judge them by their view on what I would call human rights and yeah I've locked a lot of people and I've taken some guests off the podcast like deleted their episodes because of the views they hold um Mm -hmm. and like yeah so I think I have a little bit of gratitude and I think slyly I'm like okay cool good you know good I'm glad you because
1: at least now you now you know what they're like
0: exactly and I don't have to kind of have that covert thing where it's like Oh, they' like like you just said, they're saying one thing, but then behind closed doors or with their mates or whatever, it's yeah. blah blah blah, so speaking of yeah
1: I think well, my 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 so i just so my sort of final thought on that is i what I say to people is, you know not take people with a pinch of salt, but just just have an open mind. you may hear certain things about people um you know through these networking events or online, but get to know people and make your own make your own minds up and make your own opinions when people have large followings or you know they are you know in various different you know people are having them on podcasts or having them write articles about them you know do your own homework and I even say this about myself you know yes I you know you know I am in various different magazines and publications and I've won awards etc but you know get to know me and I say that with you know for other people as well because you'll hear some things about people and it's and it's just not true on, on the positive and the negative you know I know that there are people out there who say things about me which I wouldn't agree with and I don't think is true but I would hope that people would at least come and you know find out for themselves you know there have been stories where you know investors have invested with certain people and they lost lots of money because they've been investing on the back of their sort of hype and the you know persona they've built around them just take what you hear with a with a bit of realism you know go the extra mile do the effort, put in the effort yourself to get to know who people really are before you judge them um because as i said i've been on the sort of receiving end of some some negative stuff and it's you know for me it's yeah i it, it's unfair
0: yeah i agree and you know speaking of that your networking events and your communities i guess we could call them Tell me about them. You know, Why did you set them up? What do they stand for? What do they do?
1: Yeah, so this is, I guess, this is probably one of the reasons why um, I don't have so much time to, to work on sort of the, the commercial conversions as I had initially intended to do. But I, so I set up and I started two property investment communities. So the first one is called Propel Network. Um, and that is focused on empowering women through property so it's both for people who are completely new to property who've never you know never done it before but have maybe thought about it but have no idea where to start or what to do right through to women who have been in property for you know 25 years who are experienced but maybe they're looking for connections contacts funding or or whatever it is so at Propel, we really focus on women across the entire spectrum. But fundamentally, we do three things. We provide education. Um, and, and that's going back to, you know, the conversation that we were having earlier. I do think that, you know, there is a lot that people can learn from each other. So in this case, the women can learn from each other about property. So we do education. We are obviously a community that is so important to have that support. And then the third thing is about investment opportunities. So once you've got this education and you've got the support and you wanna get out there and get going, like sometimes it's difficult to actually find the investments. Um, so one of the things that we do is we encourage women to work together. I'm a massive proponent of property crowdfunding. Um, it's something that I've actually uh, got into myself recently. Um, so that's something else that we, you know, that we that we talk about a lot. But whether it's women, you know, either starting out building their own property portfolio, JVing together and, and doing projects or, you know, investing through crowdfunding. It doesn't matter how you do it. It's just about getting women into property. Um, and there are so there are so many reasons why I, I I started it. But fundamentally, I realized that when I looked around the property scene, there just weren't as many women as men and there's no reason for it Um, so I, I wanted to do something to try and address that balance um, and then the second community that I set up is called Black Property Network um, and that is to empower people in the black community to um, to start looking at property investment and to get in but also there's a focus on investing as as a business um and we don't have that focus necessarily to the same extent in propel so they're not carbon copies of each other focused on different sectors they are actually slightly different businesses but fundamentally the aim is empowerment of people through property
0: i love it I love it. Such good causes. Now if people want to join them, I will put links in the show notes for this so they can um they can click on those directly and have a look at those. Do you run uh or oh, obviously now with Corona not so much, but did you run physical events? Was it online? How was it kind of t- yeah, tangibly so, accessible?
1: So we used to run physical events. Um now everything is online. So we have um for Propel, we have uh what we call our monthly honest stories. So this is where experienced women in property will come and talk about their property journeys, how they got into property, what they're doing. They'll go through case studies. They'll look at the numbers. And the focus is on the word honest. I got so fed up of hearing how you can get into property easily it's a get rich quick scheme or you can go on a two day weekend course and now you're a property developer. Um so for me it was about women being honest. We want the warts and all story. Tell us how it is. People will still get into property but we want them to go in with their eyes open. Um so that's what our honest story series is about. We also do um have, you know, workshops, courses because as I said we're about the education aspect as well. Um and the for Black Property Network or BPN as I call it, um very similar Again, we have um, online webinars, uh, courses. And, you know, we're just about providing support. Whatever it is that you need to help you in your or along your with your property journey, we're there. Um, and that's whether you're in Propel or whether you're in VPN. It's that community, that belonging, you know?
0: Mm. Yeah, I love it. And uh, my last question is, if you had to give three tips to someone you know starting out in property relatively new in property what would they be
1: um so the first one is to find the strategy that works for you don't be led by what other people are doing don't be led by the shiny new penny syndrome um I think to some extent I was. And that's why I was like, I want to do commercial conversions, want to do commercial conversions. Forget forget all of that. What fits for you? What is it that you're trying to achieve? You need to identify what your goals are and then find the right strategy that aligns to that. So I say that's the first thing. The second thing is don't be put off if you feel you don't have enough money to do it. So something that I hear often is I can't get into property because I don't have any money or I can't scale up because I don't have any more money. There is money out there. You just have to create your business or put yourself forward in such a way that you can attract some of that money. And I know for people who have never worked with investors before or never raised funding, it can seem very daunting. But there are people out there who have done it. You can learn from them um and and people who have never done it before you can attract you can attract funding you just it's just about how you sort of position yourself if you don't have a track record you can partner somebody who does have a track record um so that's the second thing and i say the third thing reach for the stars this is something that i have always done it's kind of one of my personal um belief systems, I always push myself and I always dream big. Um some people think I'm a bit crazy. <laughs> um because you know when I set myself goals or targets, they are big, they are aggressive, but you have to push yourself. You know, we have one life, we're here, we, we, we live once like make the most of it. Stretch yourself. For me, the 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 place that people should always be is where you feel a little bit uncomfortable. If you feel too comfortable, then you're not stretching yourself enough. And then how do you know what your potential is.
0: Yeah, love it. And I yeah, think that, that's know... my third thing. I think most of the great, you know, the, the richest people, the most successful people, have all been called crazy many times along their journey. So I think that's probably a good <laughs> sign. I would take that as a yeah, yeah, I, I am. Um, so if, if people you know want what? to, I, I like that. I like that because yeah, I, it's a... I should be crazy. I should be aggressive. <laughs> yeah, what well, well, you, you know, you have to be sometimes. If, you, if you're if you're too sane, then you just you won't, you won't get anywhere. You have to. You have to be crazy to deal with property as well. Bloody hell. Um, so exactly. if uh, if people want to get a hold of you, and I will put this in the show notes anyway, what's the best way they can yes. do it?
1: Um, a couple of ways. So LinkedIn, it's Aisha.Afori. Um, I'm always on LinkedIn. Uh, Instagram as well. You can find me on Instagram. Um, and then also, yeah, have a look. Check out Propel, uh, Propel Network. Check out BPN as well. You can always um, contact me through there. If you just register, it's free. Um, the emails come in. Um, I do look at everything. Um, I'm one of those people.
0: Um,
1: so yeah, please, please do reach out to me if you ever want to have a chat. I always try to make pe- um, time for people. Um, I love talking.
0: <laughs> Amazing.
1: Um, so, so yeah.
0: Aisha, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: No, thanks. Tej. Thanks so much for having me.
0: If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.